0: Hi, church, wherever you are gathered today as you watch or listen. In these times of crisis and isolation, we continue to be the one church in many locations. Instead of being all together in the one place, we are scattered across our district, pin- pinpoints of light shining throughout Aubrey, Wodonga, and surrounds. If you have a Bible or a device handy, open them with me to Mark chapter 8. We're going to read together from verse 27, Mark chapter 8. It says Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. God, we would ask that today your living word would speak to us in all the situations of our lives. With this passage that I've just read, Mark's a turning point in Mark's gospel. Jesus is up at the northern reaches of Israel on the border with Gentile territory. And from here, Jesus begins his journey to Jerusalem and to his looming crucifixion. And as they travel around, he asks his disciples, Who do the people say that I am? It's a question that is just as relevant today. Who do people say that Jesus is? Some people say he is a wise and a moral teacher, forgetting that he taught that he was so much more than just that. Some people say he was an embodiment of love and acceptance, forgetting that in his anger he threw over tables in the temple and he verbally lashed out at the Pharisees. Some people say he was a good man, forgetting that he ended up rejected, mocked, and crucified. Some people say he was a historical figure who did some incredible things back then, forgetting that he still lives in our present reality. Who do people say Jesus is? Maybe you've had this discussion with others, and they've shared with you their take on Jesus. So often the answers that are given result in a Jesus who places little to no demand on them. They're about, you know, buddy Jesus or a pick and mix Jesus where they they take the bits that they like of Jesus and mix that in with uh, other bits that they like from other religions and philosophies. In short, the, the answer that they give so often is a Jesus without a cross for our sin. And it's definitely a Jesus without a crown for us to submit to. Because Jesus with a cross means acknowledging our sin and recognizing that there's something that needs to be done about it. And Jesus with a crown means recognizing that we need to obey and submit to him and to his authority over our lives. And so it's a reduced Jesus, a shrunken, small Jesus, one who can be managed and contained and dismissed. So as Jesus asked the question of his disciples, similar answers to those that would be given today were given. Earlier in, in Mark chapter 6, Mark records that King Herod heard about Jesus being around and doing things, for Jesus' name had become well known. And some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. So when the disciples are asked by Jesus here, who do the people say that I am? They give these same responses. It's what they've heard about Jesus as they've traveled around. And so they're they're an informed response. And they're also pretty impressive responses. I mean, take John the Baptist. Back in chapter one of his gospel, Mark says that the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. John was drawing the crowd, and he enjoyed the popularity of the masses. If he was around today, his Twitter and his Instagram would be going viral. He was, he was someone to get on board with. Or Elijah. He had been this powerful prophet of God in Israel's history. He, he caused first a drought on the land and then rain in response to simply his prayer. But maybe most impressively... He had a showdown with Israel's corrupt king and with all the false prophets of a false god. Elijah won that confrontation, calling down fire from heaven in this incontrovertible display of God's power. He was definitely someone impressive to follow. Or a prophet as the other option they present. Now prophets were usually much more on the outer. They they often pronounced judgment and as a result, They were themselves judged and mistreated. But the prophets heard from God directly. God spoke to them and they spoke for him. And history has proven that, however unpopular they may have been in their time, they were actually the ones who were in the right. A prophet would definitely be someone to pay attention to. Who do the people say Jesus is? Someone with a big following someone with impressive power, someone who speaks for God. And all these descriptions, man, they're, they're really good. And they're true in their way. But as impressive as they might be, they are still a reduced Jesus. They are still less than he really is, making him a small Jesus. Well, it's all well and good for us, though, to talk about those people. It's easy to talk about them because that doesn't demand anything of us. And so Jesus pushes his disciples. He doesn't just ask, who do people say that I am? But in verse 29, he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? He makes it personal. And that is the reality of Jesus. We have to make a decision about him. And not making a decision is still making a decision. And so Peter responds to his question, who who do you say that I am? Peter declares, you are the Messiah. Now, Messiah or Christ, which is how it comes from the Greek, means anointed, usually with oil. In Israel, it carried this idea of setting a person apart into a special office or role, like the priest or, or a king. It has this further connotation of being commissioned and approved by God for the task that is set before them. Over time, it became a royal title. For instance, to refer to the king as the Lord's anointed. Uh, And after Israel's exile, when their monarchy uh, ceased to exist, this term Messiah was then tied to this hope of a renewal of the monarchy, particularly of of the line of David, who was kind of their their glory king, if you like. So as such, the Messiah was this hoped-for future agent who would be sent of God to come and to restore Israel's fortunes. So in the immediate context then, Peter was naming Jesus as God's promised king, who he then expected would establish his rule over Israel again, who would throw off the Roman rule that was over them and would restore Israel to peace and prosperity and righteousness as an independent people, that they would gain back their their nationhood, if you like. And Jesus seems to accept this designation of Messiah, but he then goes on to correct uh, their understanding of what it means. See, where the Messiah was thought to bring about his reign with victorious might and with glorious power, Jesus says rather that he must suffer rejected that he must be killed after all of which he will rise again and Mark tells us in verse thirty two that Jesus spoke plainly about this, in other words, he wasn 't talking in parables and he wasn 't speaking metaphorically of his path to the throne. this was not some hero 's journey and analogy to to describe what was happening for him. he was plain speaking, he was telling it like it was. Calling a spade a spade. Well, this did not fit well at all with Peter's understanding of things. And so Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. He began to correct Jesus. He said, Jesus, you've got it wrong. The Messiah doesn't suffer, he's victorious. The Messiah is not rejected, he's acclaimed. The Messiah doesn't die, he reigns on the throne. The audacity of it is actually pretty incredible. Peter has just named Jesus this long hoped for King of Israel. You know, this one with supreme authority who would rule with glory and might and majesty and all of that. But then Peter, the humble fisherman, still feels like he can rebuke Jesus and tell him that he's got it wrong. Who is the one who is big in this picture? It's Peter because he's still feeling like he can tell Jesus who and how he needs to be. And as Peter is big, it means then that Jesus is small. Jesus is is someone still being managed and directed. Jesus is still someone to fit in with what I think and with what I want. And Jesus then isn't going to take that. And so he in turn rebukes Peter, saying to him, you do not have in mind the things of God, but merely human concerns. As humans, we want to keep Jesus manageable, but Jesus doesn't let us. I can't remember who it's attributed to, but I remember reading this quote that says, God made us in his own image, and then we returned the favor, making him into ours. But God demands that we engage with him as he is and not as we want him to be. So Jesus is clear. He was speaking plainly. He must suffer. He must die. And he will rise again. But why? Why is this the case? And the answer is because he is the Messiah. Perhaps not the Messiah that we think that we want, but he's the Messiah that we need. And though he didn't understand that right now at this point, Peter would come to understand this. In his first sermon at the birth of the church in Acts 2, Peter declares, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. We knew that he was sent to us by God because of what God did through him. But then this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and his foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it, exalted to the right hand of God. He has now received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured him out for what you now see and hear. And so therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. By God's plan and purpose, Jesus suffered death on the cross and resurrection to new life. And in doing so, he's then been exalted to the right hand of God in a place of supreme rule and authority. And he has been made Lord and Messiah by God because of what he has done. He has not become Messiah by recruiting an army, by overthrowing the emperor, by expanding geographical territory, or all of which is what Peter probably expected. He has become rather Messiah by our Lord and King, by suffering, by dying. Peter would say elsewhere that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Jesus suffered for sins, not his own, but for ours. And through his suffering, Jesus reconciled us to God by dying in our place for our sin, And by doing so, he he therefore brought us to God and brought us into his kingdom and under his rule and authority. Paul says in Colossians that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He's rescued us from from this kingdom ruled by Satan that's in the dark. And he's brought us then into the kingdom of the son he loves. And how did he achieve this? He achieved it by having all of his fullness dwell in Jesus and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood that was shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. This is what Jesus said he would do as the Messiah. When Peter named him the Messiah, Jesus said that he must suffer, that he must be killed, that he must die on a cross, that he must then rise again. And why? To reconcile us to God, to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness by defeating Satan's sin and death, to bring us then into his kingdom, where we recognize his rule and his reign. We want popularity, prestige, and power. We want comfort and ease. We want to live our lives our own way. We want a Jesus who doesn't place any demands on us, a Jesus who is safely back in the distant past, We want a Jesus that we can call on when we're in need, but otherwise he'll comfortably stay out of our lives. We want a Jesus without a cross for our sin because we don't want to acknowledge that we're a sinner. And we want a Jesus without a crown for us to submit to because we don't want to live in obedience to someone else. But that's not who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah who suffered for our sin as Savior and who exercises his good authority over us as Lord and King. He's the Messiah that we need, not necessarily the one that we think we want. So who do you say Jesus is? Not just the correct theological answer, the the one that you know from being at church or from Sunday school or any of that. But what is the true answer of your life? As you live your life, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you live that Jesus is? Who is your Jesus? I wonder if part of why something like bushfires and floods and the coronavirus, like we've experienced over the last few months, If part of why these things unsettle us so is because they challenge our understanding of God. Just like Peter, we have ideas of who God is and of what he should do. And things like the events of the recent days, they don't fit in to that understanding, into that conception. We may not go so far as to have a go at God, though though maybe we do. But at the very least, we're left unsettled and uncertain we, we can feel a bit lost and adrift like the rug has been pulled out from under us things that we thought we knew and believed are challenged and contradicted by seemingly by our experiences well i think what jesus does here with peter is he asserts his right to be who he is not who we would make him to be not who we would limit or shrink him to be. And so these circumstances of the past month, they might be, and I'm not saying they are, but they might be a means by which God is asserting himself to actually be God, to remind us that we are merely human and limited and to draw us then instead to see and to experience God as he really is. He might be exploding our shrunken Jesus in order to draw us closer to the real Jesus, the Jesus that we actually need. It's this Jesus who is worthy of our lives, who is worthy of the kingdom, who is worthy for us to give our trust and obedience to. So who is your Jesus? Is it the Jesus who presents himself as he truly is, however much that might not fit with our understanding I pray it would be so so let's come to him now in prayer and church as we pray now how about you take a moment and just sit with this reflection from God's word and answer for yourselves who is your Jesus Holy Spirit would you shine your illumination into our lives into our hearts To show up to us all the ways in which our our Jesus has been shrunken, reduced, limited, made small. Where are those places where you're expecting things of Jesus and he's just not fitting into that box? And having identified Your small Jesuses. I invite you to lay them down before God. God, we want to relinquish our shrunken, diminished understandings and conception of you. Instead, we want to know you as you truly are. And so then, come to Him. Come to Him as He is not as we would make him to be. Come to him as saviour for our sin. Come to him as Lord over our lives. Recognizing both the cross and the crown that he wears and submitting all of ourselves to him, to follow him, to love him, to live for him, to, to worship him as he is because he's good and he's glorious and he's sovereign. May our shrunken Jesus be exploded and may we come to you for who you truly are, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.